I'm asking questions that I've been asking myself now for a very long time. Basically, what is time? What is motion? But now, even more so, why do we have such a strong sense of moving forward in time? And that things, in many ways, are getting more and more interesting in the universe. This has been a very long puzzle uh, in, in science. The laws of physics, all of them suggest there's no distinguished direction of time. The laws of physics work in exactly the same way. If you turn everything around and let it run backwards, you, you, you take a picture of two billiard balls colliding, you run it backwards, it looks exactly the same. However, you take a film of someone diving into a swimming pool, you run that back, that looks completely different. And it's been an issue now for about 170 years why that can be, if the laws uh, suggest it should be exactly the same. And uh, I got in, I've been interested in this for many, many years, but about seven years ago, I suddenly got an idea which might solve that problem, which came out of more fundamental questions I'd been asking, just how do you define distance? How do you define motion? Because we always see things relative to other objects in the universe. So Newton had introduced this concept, what he called absolute space. It's really a little bit like a room without, with the walls taken away. In this room where I'm sitting with you now, uh, my position relative to the chair and the walls are perfectly clear. You can see that and there's not much doubt about it there. And Newton somehow imagined that we move in, in a space which is as if the room were there, but the walls have somehow disappeared. And this has been a mystery in, in physics for a very long time. And it was the stimulus that led Einstein to create his general theory of relativity, which in the end finished up in a rather a muddled state because Einstein didn't try and do it directly, he worked indirectly. And that's been a great interest to me for a very long time. But then always at the back of my mind, I'd never forgotten this issue of why things seem to unfold in one direction when the laws that first Newton found and then Einstein found and more recent laws of particle physics, they all suggest that you can run things in either direction of time and, and it, it just looks the same. As I said, whether you run a film backwards uh, of two billiard balls colliding, it looks exactly the same when you run it backwards, but not when you have somebody diving into a swimming pool and you run that backwards, it looks totally different. And that's really, this fundamental fact was really noticed in, in a paper in 1852 by William Thompson, who later then became Lord Kelvin. And he published a short paper which said, on a unit, its title was on a universal tendency in nature to the dissipation of mechanical energy. So everything is, seems to be running down. <laughs> and we see this everywhere we look. Uh, we all get older in the same direction. We never meet anyone getting younger. And moreover, all the billions upon billions of stars that the astronomers see in the sky, they're all getting older in the same direction. Their aging process is very well understood. Where does this fantastic sense of direction come from if you can't see it in, in the underlying laws? And quite by chance, an idea came to me uh, 
about seven years ago, uh, which came from knowing something about a solution. There was a very famous bit of work done in 1772 by the great Italian-French mathematician uh, Joseph uh, Lagrange. And he was studying the Earth-Moon-Sun system. That was a problem that gave Newton headaches. And he made a very interesting discovery that if the system has either zero energy or positive energy, so it's not a bound system like the solar system is where the planets can never escape from the sun. It, it just has to have either zero energy or positive energy. Then as time goes, the size of the system in both directions of time, both to the past and to the future, will grow without limit. It will go up to infinity in both directions. And there's just one unique point where the size is at its minimum. And I suddenly thought, well, maybe that's something to do with the problem of where the arrow of time comes from. Why? Because if you start from this point here, the system is getting bigger. And in fact, under gravity, it gets more structured. The universe becomes, it's very uniform at this point of minimal size. And as you go away from it, it gets more structured. And as you go in the other direction, it gets more structured. Now, if we're talking about, and this applies not only to just three particles that Lagrange was studying, but any number of particles you have. And it occurred to me that if you're thinking about a system of objects in the real universe, the whole of the background universe defines the direction of time for you. And you just say, well, this system went through a minimal size and then it grew again. And that was the past and that's the future. But if you're saying this is a model of the whole universe, this is a toy model of the whole universe, that background arrow for which we're all so familiar just isn't there. So if I was to show this situation where I have here a very uniform distribution of particles and in both directions away from it a more clustered, more structured distribution, if I was to show that to my grandson, of, who's nearly five, and say, can you point directions where things, interesting things are happening, which direction would they go? Well, he would say, well, one arrow goes from here in that direction, and one goes in that direction. So this then gave me the idea, I call it the Janus point idea, from the Roman god Janus, who looks in two opposite directions at once. If this was just my model universe, and I was asked to say in which direction time flows, well, I would have to say, actually, there are two directions from that central Janus point, like the Roman god who looks in two directions, opposite directions at once. There's one direction, one arrow of time going in this way, and one in that arrow, of, going in that direction. And maybe even, and if we had observers inside this universe, they would think, well, maybe this is the beginning of time back here, this Janus point, as I call it, and we're going forward to the future in that way. They would, if they could look backwards, they would see this sort of confusion here where everything is, is rather uniform, a bit like a swarm of bees, very uniformly distributed and moving in all sorts of different directions at once. And you can, you can show this with mathematical, do the calculations on a computer and show this actually happening. Uh, 
And then there would be another universe on the other side where time is going in, in the other direction. But the people on this side couldn't see what's happening on that side and vice versa. So this has the potential, I think, to completely resolve this mystery of how the laws can be symmetric and nevertheless, you can be in a situation where you only see asymmetric things happening, where there's a very pronounced sense of direction, because the overall solution in this case is completely symmetric. The two halves are qualitatively similar. They differ in details, but they're basically the same. So the solution is symmetric. But because observers can only be on one side or the other side, they see things very asymmetrically. So there's a very profound sense of the direction of time on either side of these things, although the symmetry of the law and the symmetry of the solution are respected. So that was the idea that occurred to me back in 2012. And I've been developing that with collaborators since then. So back in 1999, my book, The End of Time, came out, where that was very much concerned with the same issue of where does our sense of coming from a past and going to a future come from? At that stage, I was still thinking that size had some real objective meaning. It's quite clear as I sit in this room that I'm smaller than the room. And you can see that because you can see the background of the walls of, of the room. Uh, but really, size is always relative to something else. My, uh, my hands are basically the same size, but my fingers are shorter than my complete hand. So really, science should always really be about ratios. You should, particularly if you're thinking about the whole universe. And back 20 years ago, I was just beginning to develop these ideas that it's really only ratios that count and that overall size of the complete universe may be a dangerous concept. And I was just beginning to develop these ideas in my book, The End of Time. There's just three pages where I talk about shape space. And I can illustrate that idea quite easily. If you think of a triangle, that's the simplest non-trivial geometrical object. It's amazing how much you can get out of a triangle. A triangle has a shape and a size. And in many ways, the shape is clearly much more fundamental. Suppose I hold an equilateral triangle up in front of my face and move it backwards and forwards. The shape doesn't change, but the size does uh, as I see it, on my, as, it as the image is uh, projected onto the retina of my eyes. So, I started then to think that it would be better just to think about the shape of the universe, how that changes, and not uh, worry so much about the size. And it was in the course of developing these ideas that I had this new insight about how the universe might be uh, uh, have a minimum size and grow either side of it and become more structured. And one could characterize this change of structure in a way that just change, tells you how the shape is changing, not how the size is changing. And this has led to a really quite interesting way of 
thinking about Einstein's great theory of general relativity, which really talking about not about space-time and how the curvature of space and time changes, but basically how the shape of the universe at any instant changes. And my collaborators and I call this shape dynamics. And in, in many ways, we think it's a more fundamental way of looking at general relativity. It's, as it were, removing all the parts of this wonderful theory, which are not absolutely essential, and it's leaving all the bits that you must have, otherwise it would fall apart. Just as you, if you take a triangle, you can imagine saying, well, the size doesn't really matter. But if you take away, you've, got, you've always got to have three sides of a triangle. If you take one of them away, you've lost your triangle. It's gone. So the shape is absolutely minimum. You've got to have, you've got to have the three sides or two internal angles. And this is sort of the being the most sort of economic, boiling things down to the absolute bare minimum. And surprisingly, this hasn't really been done in, in, in science before, in, in thinking about the universe. It, it's not been a, a way that people have thought about it. Although there are some aspects, some very important parts of general relativity, which do rely upon that. And I was lucky to work for several years with, with someone who had done important work on that. In fact, all the work that's now done with uh, predicting what gravitational waves would like, look like when two black holes circle around each other and then collide and give off gravitational waves, all those predictions couldn't be done without this work, which is really talking about how the shape of the universe changes in accordance with Einstein's theory. So hidden inside that wonderful theory of Einstein, the, there is really a theory of shape dynamics, which I hope we have brought out, and an increasing number of people are, I think, taking that seriously and looking at it. So this has been a, an important input in, in my story. And so the ideas that I, quite a lot of the ideas that I had in my book from 20 years ago have survived, but uh, in a sense with the redundant elements taken out, the, I think the most important ideas have survived. And, and this first step to just thinking about the shape of the universe is, was already in the book then. My book originally made certain predictions that required very difficult mathematics to be done. That hasn't happened at all. And in a way, that book of mine was, was based much more on intuition than the present ideas I've got, because the present ideas really do have solid mathematical results behind them in a way that that other book didn't. Uh, so I'm, I'm very pleased about that. I mean, the, the starting point of the new ideas is, is a first really, is a very important result in Newton's theory, which is now 250 years old. <laughs> and it, it's a very solid result. So um, it's not so much as yet something being disproved by an observation as um, mathematical results being brought forward, which are much more secure and on a sure basis. Um, now, if we are really on a promising new direction, we may be able to make predictions about the universe which nobody has thought that the universe would look like. And perhaps one could then 
maybe if we if things really work out well in 20 years from now a space probe might be sent up to make observations and and could confirm these things but meanwhile it's just it looks as if it has the potential to solve a very long standing problem certainly i've i've discussed this with some uh, leading physicists. None of them have, have found anything wrong with it. Um, I don't know... Well, we did have... The first paper was published in Physical Review Letters back in 2014. That's the top physics journal in the world. Um, I think the, the editors must have been quite worried about our paper because we were making fairly big claims and they sent it to five referees mm -hmm. and uh, three of those referees said this is very interesting definitely publish it um, one referee just said this is wrong and can't be published but didn't give any reason and the fourth one was skeptical but we won we won that referee round uh, and then the the editors chose it as editor's choice. Uh, it was then, uh, and then, then they had a comment piece written about it by a well-known expert in, in quantum gravity. And it did attract a lot of attention. It uh, uh, Online, there was quite a number of features about it. So it went down well. Um, and uh, I've talked to quite a lot. My collaborators have talked with people. We've, we've given talks at many seminars, n nobody yet has come up with, with a flaw. One of the really great books in science was published in 1824 by a young Frenchman called Sadi Carnot. And this was a book trying to work out what is the best way to make a steam engine so that a steam engine works in the most efficient way possible. And this is one of the most wonderful books. It's a very thin little booklet. The title is On the Motive Power of Fire. And in it, in, in only in about six pages, he explains how you would, could make a steam engine which would work with the absolute maximum efficiency possible. The work was almost entirely ignored, uh, and he died before anything much could come out of it. Uh, and it was really rediscovered in, in 1849 when William Thompson, who later became Lord Kelvin, wrote a paper which publish, publicized this work. And within a couple of years, really, thermodynamics had been created as a, a science. It caused a tremendous lot of excitement from the 1850s onwards. Uh, and all of this came out of this very slim booklet of Sadi Kano. Now, the the key thing about this uh, work of Carnot is that if you have a steam engine, the steam has to remain in a cylinder, in a box. And you want the steam engine to work continuously. So you keep on having to bring the steam and the cylinder back to the condition it was before. So it keeps on going like this. And it's very remarkable that all of the development of what's called statistical mechanics, which was understanding how steam behaves and led to the discovery of entropy, which was one of the really great discoveries in the history of science, it was all followed out of this work of Carnot on how steam engines work. 
And moreover, it was very anthropocentric thinking about how human beings could exploit coal to drive steam engines and do work for them. And at that stage, nobody was really thinking about the universe as a whole. They were just thinking about how they could make steam engines work better. And this way of thinking, I believe, has survived more or less unchanged to this day. You still find that people who work on this problem of the arrow of time are still assuming conditions which are appropriate for a steam engine. But in 1920s, in the 1920s and early 1930s, Hubble showed that the universe is expanding. We live in an expanding universe. Is that going to be well modeled by steam in a box? So my belief is people haven't realized we have to think out of the box. We have to think in different ways. And that remarkably completely changes the things. And we keep on finding ways in which the mathematics that was developed before to understand essentially systems confined in a box have to be modified with quite surprising consequences. And above all, possibly to explain why we have this incredibly powerful sense of the passage of time, why the past is so different from the future. The, the modern age, in, 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 certainly in physics and cosmology, there's tremendous competition for ideas. Uh, so it's quite difficult for people to take, uh, to notice new ideas often, because each scientist is working on his own pet, his or her pet idea. So they, they generally don't look at, at other things. There, there's certainly a lot of problems with confirming these speculative ideas uh, that, that theoreticians like string theory, and, and there are various other forms, loop quantum gravity, that, that people have been trying to develop. Um, I think the, where things may come really interestingly, but will take time, is from astronomical observations, cosmology. The, the, it is amazing the, the new instruments that are being developed. I mean, we've, just only a few days ago, we had the results of the Event Horizon Telescope, which has really shown a black hole and what it looks like. That was a major project to get that going and, and the results that come out. And these things that rely on, on observations of the whole universe, they, they take anything up to a couple of decades or longer from the first plan through to often it means either building a huge telescope in, in northern Chile in the Atacama Desert or putting a telescope in space, this takes a tremendous amount of time. And it's, it's amazing that when they succeed, but bit by bit, you know, wonderful things are being discovered about the universe as a whole. Uh, on the Earth, it's, it's getting incredibly expensive and, and difficult now to go beyond the, this great discovery of the Higgs boson uh, at the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva. These, these take a lot of time. Um, so people are a bit discouraged by that. Um, the ideas that we're developing, it's been encouraging how surprising new developments have come. So 
I'm hoping we might be able to find something that could be tested. Maybe the material is already there, it just needs to be looked at in a different way, or maybe it would suggest a new experiment that mm -hmm. could be made. One possible experiment. So the, this idea that we have that, that the history of the universe is really consists of two parts, where there's a, 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 what we normally think of as the Big Bang, the, the start of time, is really just a middle point in the timeline of the universe with two arrows of time pointing away from it in opposite directions. Now, our theory suggests that we should be able to say something rather precise about what the conditions are like at that critical central point. This would, say, give an idea of how the universe started in a way that's more precise than now, and this then might lead to predictions as to what the universe should look like now. So that, that's, that's a, a hope that we're working on. We did have some ideas about that, which are not totally discouraging, but it's a long way to develop them there. So, so this would be, this could be useful. Um, there is a theory called inflation, which explains the, the, the structure of the universe now. It's, it's very widely accepted by cosmologists, but it's, it's not without its difficulties. It's a little bit ad hoc. You'd, it doesn't really make... It makes one wonderful prediction, but a lot of other ones you have to really know what the answer is and then adjust the theory to make sure it gives that. Um, and it's possible that the ideas we're developing could solve some of those problems, possibly for inflation, or in fact show that inflation is not necessary at all. That would be definitely an interesting development. It probably wouldn't be welcomed by the people who work on inflation. But there are quite a lot of people who distrust inflation. Um, and one of the problems which people who do like inflation admit is that it, it doesn't have a rival theory at the moment. So if we were able to develop some serious alternative to it, people would welcome that because it, it's never a healthy situation where you have just one theory and that theory isn't 100% predictive. It, it, it's, it, it makes one prediction which is confirmed very well indeed. But there's a lot of other things which you can't predict and you have to put in by hand. So people are not totally happy with inflation. One of the things that I think is, is most interesting about this is, is how it, it possibly completely changes the way people think about the universe. Ever since the law of entropy increase was discovered in the 19th century, as a result of the work that Sadi Kano had originally done on the steam engine, then there was a great German scientist called Rudolf Clausius. He was the person who developed the notion of entropy and then said that the entropy of the universe increases tends to a maximum. And this also matched the idea of the heat death of the universe, that the universe is going to be a completely bleak future with nothing interesting there. Now, this I think we could completely change that by saying certainly there's a lot of evidence that the universe has been getting a much more interesting shape. People have been, I think this is maybe because of the anthropocentric way people thought about the steam engine, that the steam engine was doing work for human beings. But what people much of a 
have not noticed is that actually the steam engine is making the universe more interesting, making a more interesting, making the universe have a more interesting shape, a more interesting story. And in fact, there's a, there's a very famous image of the evolution of the universe which NASA has put out showing how it starts from a sort of mysterious quantum big bang and then there's an inflationary period and then bit by bit stars and galaxies form and then finally you get life forming on the earth and ever more detailed things happening. Now this goes completely counter to the idea that the entropy which means the disorder of the universe is increasing from the Big Bang to now. So people have the idea that the universe started in, in a very special state, very ordered state, and it's been getting very disordered ever since then. Well, we're suggesting that it's completely the other way around. The universe, in our view, starts in the most disordered way possible, and it's been getting, at least up to now, ever more interesting. And this, on the face of it, looks like a more positive view of the world. It's not quite like that awful image of, of the heat death. Now, it may be nevertheless that the universe in some senses will die, but in some senses will die in a very beautiful form. Uh, this is very speculative, but certainly we are suggesting that the universe is getting, is not getting up to now at least, it's not getting more disordered, it's getting more interesting, more structured. And this actually corresponds to what we see. I mean, certainly near the Big Bang, you and I couldn't be talking to each other in the way we are now. Here we are with modern technology talking to each other in London. It's a pretty amazing universe we live in. And we think that we possibly have the underlying explanation of why that can be. That li lies in, in, in certain mathematical theorems, which in the past, when you had to have steam in a box, led to the steam, if it was originally in a small corner of the box, it would spread out and then be very uniformly distributed in the box. And, and you would have what is called equilibration taking place. However, if there's no box, the system can spread out, and as it, can, as it does that, it can take a much more interesting shape. So it's that removal of the box that seems to suggest why the universe is so ex extraordinarily interesting. This, this is potentially a totally different way of thinking about things, and it's all to do with saying that there isn't a box there at all. And there's, there's a very nice analogy with this, Back at when Kepler was trying to work out what the planets did, he thought about certain observations that Tycho Brahe had made of a comet in 1577. And Brahe had shown at least that the comet was very far away. It couldn't be up in the sky because people had thought comets were meteorological things in the atmosphere of the Earth. But Brahe had shown it was very far away. Kepler went further. He said it must have it was very far away, and it must have gone clean through the crystal spheres which people thought carried the planets around in the sky at that stage. And Kepler said, wonderful saying, he said, henceforth the planets must find their way through the void like the birds through the air. We must philosophize about these things differently. And what I'm suggesting is that, quite amazingly, all of the thought about 
entropy and how disorder grows has all been because people have been thinking in terms of everything being in a box. But if the universe is not in a box, just like Kepler, we must philosophize about things differently. And that, I think, changes things totally.